Get off my show. On a bash it. And it's not your show. <laughs> if we had a, you heard that genre. Right? If we had you heard, a, you heard, you heard him say my my show, right? If we, yes. heard, if we my had, my his as in his. If we had a council, they'd be an uproar. We are we're the we, council. We are the council. <laughs> Two thirds of the council is is somewhat uproarious right now. Has vetoed the one member. The I one. Like, uh, I like the the use of uproarious. I'll, I'll take that. Uproarious, or uproar walrus. Up walrus? A good good too, man. Uproarious. Up, up, <laughs> um, As always, you have John, Matt, and Steve. We kid, we kid, of course. <laughs> yes. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt. And I'm not really John. He's an imposter that uh, is doing a really good impression of John. Actually, it's Nelson Lugo is actually here pretending to be John. The 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 fourth member. The fourth member of the podcast. Repli- told- yeah, well, he's replaced oh. you before. So yes, only indeed. once. That that was what I wanted to only bring up. Only replacement I will actually approve of so far. On on mm. Saturday, I did the Dune bo- Dune themed podcast, um, working with Francine the Lucid Dream, who produced it, and she is a wonderful delight. Shape of the Dark Lord hosted, and Nelson Lugo did a wonderful magic trick in it. But when I was talking to him pre-show. I told him that we consider him an unofficial fourth member of the podcast, and he was like, ah, stop it. <laughs> um, it's still quite spread out, though, when you consider our 123 episodes and his yeah. three appearances, but it beats the rest. I'm looking to try and find a Sunday in January to squeeze him on, though, because I would like to, even if it means having two guests in January, I'd like to try and get him in, because he's really geared up about this record that he still won't tell me about. Hmm. So so we'll see if we can make that happen, internets. Um, Gotta rewind, though. Ooh, ooh. Gotta rewind. Wait, wait, wait. We could get rid of Matt for that podcast and and have Nelson and, and have him as the third member this time and just rotate out. And record somewhere else that's not in the spacious Studio 2J. Oh. Oh. Um, what were you going to say, Steve? <laughs> we're, we're rewinding. Sides. We're getting yes. Brr- Did you say Dune-themed podcast? A b- a Dune-themed burlesque show. Dune... Okay. But it okay. was, but don't get your hopes up. It was ba- so the Pink Room Burlesque does David Lynch movies. So it was based on the David Lynch version of Dune. Oh, I'm very okay with that. Oh, it was incredible. Um, the final Does act it, is was a people... female burlesque performer dressed as the lead, masturbating into a sandworm's mouth. Hmm. I, I'm wondering what we have to do for editing there, but I, I guess I'm trying. I'm really yeah. curious Matt. if if they do the the really slow. Dagger trying to pierce one another and slowly slice away each other's clothes because that would be perfect for a burlesque show. They didn't, though. One of the performers, Iris Explosion, did a perfect fade act, crazy eyes and all. So that was fun. Okay, cool. But it was a cool show. And then on Sunday night, we had a. I've mentioned Raw Burlesque before. One of the producers, Stella Chu, her and her fiance were, um, lost all of their money that they deposited for their wedding venue, went out of business, and took, the, took their money and ran. They recently had a benefit show headed by Danger Doll, the other producer of Raw Burlesque, to raise money for Stella and Jeff 
to try and get them the wedding that they've always wanted. We ended up raising over $6,000 at this benefit show, which was amazing. And it was an outpouring of love for a wonderful, blessed producer and performer, Stella Chu, who I will hopefully have on in the new year. So I want to give a shout out to her as well, because I know she listens. Um, and we love you, and we're glad we were able to raise money for you for that show. Moving on to this week, getting in the now. Which brings it right back to you. It does bring it right back to me. So um, this was my pick. It's um, the newest Foo Fighters record. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters are a band that I've been listening to for a long time. Um, they're one of my favorite bands. And they've come a long way from a self-titled record to The Shapes and The Color. Uh, the Color and The Shapes. Sorry, I always flip it. There's Nothing Left to Lose, One by One, In Your Honor, Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace, Wasting Light, and then their newest record, Sonic Highways. Sonic Highways is an interesting project because they decided to do something different, something I've not heard any band ever do before. They wrote the music and the songs in advance and then went to eight different cities in eight different states and recorded in those eight different places, all eight tracks. In that respect, I suppose it's not anything any band has ever consciously done before, because there's been many an occasion where bands were forced to, to record, in, to other record in other places because they had disagreements with the artists they were recording with, and often, sometimes it's it's been for the better, and sometimes it's been for the worse. Sometimes they leave a good project, and now their project sounds mishmashed, and then sometimes they needed to find the best person to work with possible, and that way they're able to refine their, their previous work. But in their particular case, it was intentional from the start that they were going to work with eight different people. Did they know who they were going to work with, or yes. was it just sort of out of so, the bag? So this was um, set up also because Dave Grohl has been making waves as a director as well, and this was created as an HBO TV miniseries called Foo Fighters Sonic Highways. Um, where they show the making of each song in each city in each episode and then play the song at the end. Um, and it's just an a really interesting concept. We're not going to talk about the TV show today. We haven't had a chance to watch it. We're focusing on the music, which we've done before when talking about soundtracks and other things. We're all about the music. But I just wanted to mention that it was... These things were created together and um, on purpose. This is, of course, Foo Fighters' eighth record, eight cities, eight tracks, not definitely not a coincidence um eight anything else <laughs> there was an eight in the album cover is it the eighth album it is the eighth oh, album. That's it's, you said it's, that, right? there's lots of eights there's lots okay. of eights okay and so crazy eights um i think approaching this record with that in mind is important um i'm a huge fan of theirs as i said i've been listening to them since their start so why don't we get right into this record? So of course, the record is called Sonic Highways. The first track is called Something From Nothing. Something which, From Nothing. Which was recorded in Chicago, Illinois, and, and features Rick Nielsen. So we begin in Chicago. Interesting. Uh, do you have any uh, reason why that was the starting point for this album, or is it just... I'm Not to my knowledge. Um... I believe it's just where they wanted to record the first track, and so that's where it is. Well, I should bring up this also. You said the album cover also has the eight on it, right? Yes. In the center, because the album cover uh, we should probably describe, because we don't get the chance to actually talk about album covers that much, because frankly, there are a lot of really bland album covers out there. Well, this one caught my eye immediately, and it's worth noting, because of not just the project that you mentioned, even if I didn't know anything about that, the album cover would intrigue me, because the urbanist in me was just awakened by this sight of an island nation, this compact nation, which is obviously a representation of America, which just cut out everything in between, and you, if you look to the far west of this little compact island, you'll see 
you'll see landmarks from Seattle, landmarks from, from L.A., uh, San Francisco, etc. And you'll see in landmarks in most of the cities that obviously they're representing in the album. And it's just this really cool effect, kind of not unlike uh, an old cartoon, probably like a Thomas Nast cartoon that was circulated around the 19th century, where you're looking at New York City as the universe as the world, looking to the west, and it's just this this abyss, and then somewhere over there is Japan. Somewhere to the east is like, eh, Europe, and then nothing else. It's kind of like that, only instead on a national scale, and, and an urban scale instead of, a, uh, instead of a, a singular city scale. So I thought that was interesting. It's also, frankly, amazingly detailed. You can see little balconies on everything. Honestly, they did a great job yeah, of commissioning this. It's easy to identify this. any landmark. And... and it's not just the one eight. There's eights throughout this whole cover. Uh, just at a glance, I'm already counting over a dozen of them. Uh, from the tops of buildings to the street work. I mean, they they had an idea of behind this album. Just from looking from the artwork. Track number one, Something From Nothing. We get, for starters, and uh, you'll sort of support this as being the more, more of an aficionado at, at Foo Fighters' work, but it begins with somewhat of a fairly plaintive intro. It starts us off in E minor, where we just seesaw back and forth between the root and the third and the fifth together, using just a lone guitar with a quality that sounds somewhat distant. It's, it's not a very warm sound. It strains to kind of speak through this electric hum in the background. Now that's a pretty common effect, and I find it in most varieties of rock uh, to date. It achieves this, this stage sadness without, I think, going full acoustic, because it can't be stressed enough. They're a rock band, first and foremost. They have softer songs, but the vast majority of their work is fairly lively, correct? Yeah, I mean, it fluctuates. They have slower, more emotional, poignant songs. They have fast, powerful, loud songs. I mean, they're kind of, they're so, rock bands. So they can be all over the board, yeah. which obviously is, is an element of rock. Um, beyond that, I also found that that effect, that electric hum in the background, blends kind of well with his voice. The slight filter, specifically, that I find on his voice. Uh, I detected that immediately when it begins. Almost comes across like you're playing back a tape. And this, mind you, is just in the first, first ten seconds. Yeah, but 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 uh, it it's it's sad that that doesn't really go anywhere. Well, that single we instrument style takes a long time to really develop. Well, and it's a, it's it's it does pick up, and when it does start really building upon it, but it doesn't build on it quick enough for me. It 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 kind of plays out that simplicity a little bit too long for what I'm looking for in this song. Oh, I didn't think it was long enough. Actually, I thought it was fairly, fairly brief. I mean, we get, we continue the verse first of all by by not just staying on that singular chord. Instead, we keep that that whole seesaw configuration going by taking the root and then dropping it down chromatically one by one, while the third and the fifth remain exactly the same. Now, this is another common tactic. In fact, it's it's sort of a trademarked ballad tactic. It's a very, very simplistic, straightforward way of getting a whole range of interesting chord changes under your belts within a well, pretty short span of time, and also without really doing much. All you're really doing is just changing the route. So, it's emotional, sure, but I will agree with you. I think it's sort of a textbook sadness for me, which I'm kind of over a little bit. You find it a lot in, as I said, many varieties of rock. You also find it in a lot of uh, 90s rock, the, the stuff that came out of grunge, the stuff that... Um, you could throw into early alt, that sort of thing. It's, 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 it's a little bit textbook, but we do pick this up. After that, 
we naturally repeat the same progression, but this time around, it's filled out quite a bit more. Not by overthrowing the progression, it's the same exact verse structure, but everything else is much warmer all of a sudden. No more of that whole demo tape feel. Instead, new guitars step in to comp along with these more drawn-out tones. There's a slow drum accompaniment, and it's just, in general, fuller, rounded, and, and a more more of a ballad sound at this point. So we step out of demo tape land, and I, I, I enjoyed that transition quite well, actually. Yeah, it was sort of a, a, a brief rock intermission about halfway through the lyrical progression. And that's also where the song starts picking up for me lyrically, because vocally, Foo Fighters has a, a, a great sound, very iconic at this point. I mean, they've been around for 20 years. Um, though lyrically... Not always the most impressive. They tend to err on the side of anthem, in my opinion, more than anything else. They want to have something that you can chant and sing along with, not necessarily something that's going deep into the realm of the introspective or anything like that. They, they, they want you to be with them, not necessarily tell a story. But when they start saying things like, Oh, sweet ignition, be my fuse, you have no choice, you have to choose. Well, that's a that's a well that's that's far uh, into this track. For instance, that that's that that culminates in what I would like to call, for the sake of this track, a uh, tantamount to a B section. Yes, because this th- this this that's that's where I really feel the song picking up. As far even, as an intro, even the, but even the rock that they're putting in the introduction, like you said, f- almost formulaic, um, very expected from earlier uh, early Foo Fighters type of material. Here, You're right, you, have, you have that kind of intermission with the rock. And it goes into this B section, definitely expands upon it, definitely picking it up, playing around with the melody, playing around with the drums a lot more. I like, I like it when they speed them up a little bit more. Uh, this is what really started gripping me with this song. Well, the track gets heightened at this point. It's where it kind of moves to that next place. You would, you would assume the track was going to go. It was kind of building to this. It wasn't unexpected. Well, you know, I would say it builds to it, but only in the sense that it wasn't able to find any semblance of climax in in uh, the chorus that it had already presented, or even uh, or even the pre-chorus, if you could consider it. Um, I, like, for instance, there's there's a, there's a moment here right at the end of the first verse where the lyrics go, "Here lies a city on fire, singing along the arsonist choir. Now here I go," and. The music starts to sort of swell a little bit on this point. Every single time it returns to, you know, so here I go, now here I go. This is sort of that, that, that pickup. And it does take a little bit more of an assertive approach here. It's an assertive approach to the guitar just to back, back the verse or support it a little bit more. But it never really reaches any climax because by the time we go into the, into the, the chorus itself, it's, it's really not... It, it's it's nothing it's nothing special it's nothing it, it doesn't reach any height and that's where the B section comes in because after teetering back and forth for a few times between the verse and the chorus the only thing we do get I think that that expands this a little further is the uh, the second verse section when the bass becomes much warmer and the bass starts taking more more of an active tone but apart from that it's it's the moment it, it once it departs from that second chorus that was the actual hook that was the, the full-on B section where the bass and drums have just consummated completely. You felt it in more of a in more of an more of an upbeat tempo. Um, even though the tempo has not really changed, it's just it's much it's, more lively. Yeah, it uh, it feels more fleshed out. It's more 
I guess, iconic of rock, because I don't think they're really breaking any boundaries here or anything like that, but it definitely leans more towards the intricacies that I like in rock and roll. Well, it brought me back to a bunch of things. It brought me back to uh, funk, for instance. You for that, that Just dashes of it here da- and there. Dashes of it just just for the fact that, that it's it's really that combo between the bass and the drum that links it, and that's important for <laughs> funk, and it's, it's elemental for this. Uh, beyond that, I even got a little bit of, of, of 70s prog rock here. I felt, I felt a little bit of yes in this, in this section. It was, it was very interesting. It had depth, it had grit, and then also the guitar riff that joins in has a much, much more attitude to it. It's, it's more of a strut, a little bit more dance-friendly, and as I said, reflective of a more 70s sound, which I was just absolutely loving. Um, even though it does end, interestingly, with the same lead-in as, as the previous verses, uh, to the return, the return of the chorus, which is sort of, uh, I get, I think it's a little bit of a letdown because, frankly, you know, if you're entrenched in in a, in a funk section, you might as well continue that a little bit. But I do appreciate it for trying to yeah, link the song together. It hits the top and kind of falls down a little bit, plateaus once again with what it was doing earlier. I don't think it plateaus. I, well, I mean, yeah, I don't think it falls down. I think just plateauing is the right way to describe it. But I do like the kind of rock out outro. I mean, it's one thing that Foo Fighters have always done and done well, this kind of jam, rocking out, ramping up till the song ends. Um, I well, for instance, s- the second B section, when it re- when it repeats that, is, yeah. is much longer. Like, the first time, as I said, the first time is a little bit shorter, a little bit of a letdown, and then you get the same riff that leads into the chorus as earlier. But then, after that, we get a second section of the B, and that is much longer. That's more, you could view it as a plateau, at the same time you could view it as just jamming out for the yeah. final stretch of this track, which, if you already loved it, as I did, that would be enjoyable. And uh, it should be said here that this was the first single of the album, this song. Um, it was released on October 16th of 2014, and it was it's the lead single. Um, I don't think they've released another single yet. I could be wrong, though. It's an interesting choice for a single. It's a, it's a bold choice for a single. Um, ambitious, I think, compared to most of the singles we get, which are, are pretty trite by comparison. This well, is definitely more expansive. And you also have to consider they're the Foo Fighters. It's unlikely they'd put out a single and people would go, ah, I don't like it. It's different. Like, I mean, they're the Foo Fighters. They, <laughs> they, they've speak, got a lot of clout. to your audience. Yeah, yes. and they have a lot of clout, so no one would go, that's not a normal single. they just go, oh, new Foo Fighters song. All right, rock on. Right. Exactly. Um, there's a reason, of course, I referred to that, that B section as, as a B section period, because it's, it's just it's too assertive to be a bridge. Yeah. It doesn't merely link two sections. It, it really is a bold turning point for this album that started out part ballad, built up into your more standard generic rock, and then finally went into this amazing section, which would set some expectations for this album, I think, especially the way it, it intensifies by the tail end before the final... Uh, the final re- return of that chorus riff at, at the very, very end, um, which was slowed down as, as, your, as your tail end outro. Yeah, which I think was kind of a really great way to wrap up the track. It was a tasteful yeah. choice. Tasteful, definitely. It, it, got, it got that layer of, of, of heavy that I really wanted with it. Something to leave me actually wanting more. Well, we do get a little more of Heavy, if uh, perhaps not in the same way. Track two, we get The Feast and the Famine. This one was recorded in Arlington, Virginia, and it features uh, Pete Stahl and uh, Skeeter Thompson of Scream. In this song, yeah, there's more Heavy, but the, the, the initial playful guitar, the higher drums, and the high vocals, they come together very well. Because he's staying away from the kick drum, so we don't have to worry about the deeper tones. I mean, everything is meshing well here, 
it just, once again, I feel like I've kind of heard this part before. Mm, elements of it, but elements also not. For instance, uh, just the way it, it really starts up, you're right, we're kind of shying away from the drum in the very beginning. In fact, all you get is just this opening guitar pattern that's very distorted, and it involves these very close intervals. For instance, uh, the opening riff, very beginning of the song, you just get this, this alternation between uh, D-sharp, F-sharp, and E. Very, very close, compact there with, the, with this uh, little pattern that goes over and over again, and then it alternates that pattern between uh, a similar pattern that uses B, D, and E. So with the sort of high, kind of bleated over effect that the guitar has, and the fact that it's the only thing there, and the fact that it's somewhat mid to high range, um, it's an interesting way to start off an album. And what's more important than that is the rhythm. What's more interesting than anything here is the rhythm. Because this is one of those cases where the you get this effect of them kind of jerking you around a little bit, where you'd almost expect it to be in an odder rhythm than it actually is in, but it's all in four. Some might hear it in double time, more of a quicker eight. I heard it in more of a, a, a slower four. Because it aligns, the beat would align with the only drums that you actually hear after after a, a couple of measures or so. So you get that intro where it's just the guitar, and then all of a sudden, once the once the drums are in full force, I heard there being more of an alignment with, say, the uh, second, third, and, and fourth beat on the drums. But the first is conspicuously absent. It's almost like a bare silence, just for a moment, where they kind of pick it up and then jerk you around with this more even two, three, four. And yet that itself seems like it's offbeat from where the actual verse begins later, when it's, it's even more heavier. And it, it comes across almost as a gasp of breath. As if, to, if you, to compare them to a vocal style, it's that <gasps> pause. But yeah. with no sound, um, well, not, not exactly no sound. It, it leaves a little ringing in your ears, but it's, it's an interesting choice. That's why I do like this verse work here. The problem I really have in this song is how abrupt it changes. When it when when the sh it shifts to the more chorus orientation, it's it's like, all right, everybody, we have something interesting. Let's just all play it once. And I don't like that sonic shift. Mm. Yeah, that's the, you know I could accept that that interpretation of this track. For me, I think I was more because I was so interested in the rhythm at this point. That shift is the same moment where I mentioned uh, it seems just slightly shifted a beat, where I'm not hearing it on the same. I'm hearing it just a half a beat off from where I heard it in the intro. Not that, that was really like solid back then either, but because I'm hearing this just shifted a little bit, I don't know. It, it it was this intriguing case of tying the two sections together, and it seemed appropriate that they would. Uh, all play together at that moment and sort of come together in tandem and, and, and rock out together. Plus it was even more easier to get on board, so they go from intriguing you to then just rocking out with you. I, I accepted it. Um, I have a minor rant here. Um, so I anyone who's talked to me about the Foo Fighters in the last four years at least, um, or five, I've gone on about Wasting Light, their last record, which was fantastic. It was a return to form. It reminded me of the, of, um, the Colors and the Shape, and actually I thought it was better than, which is blasphemous to a lot of people, um, because it went to the old Foo Fighters sound, but did something with it. They evolved it. They birthed some new stuff from it, still honing that Foo Fighters sound. This track as it starts and as it progresses has that unrefined old Foo Fighters sound and I don't want to go back to that it's like when Green Day went back to their old stuff 
I like the old Foo Fighters stuff, but I want them to continue to evolve. That said, Steve made a very good point. What this track lacks in diversity or even compl complexity, it makes up for in power and energy because it is a very energetic and engaging track if you're along for the ride, well, it also which I appreciate it. It also depends on the aspects of this track that you're talking about. For instance, you can, you can try to support this for me if you can as to what is the old Foo Fighters sound, but there's something here... The thing I already mentioned that I enjoyed the rhythm. I thought that was that was very well done. It was for the most interesting rhythm here on on the album. Just in in, in the way they were uh, they were shifting it around on you and shifting the emphasis and these accents. But the thing that really is going to draw on you, and maybe this is what John you were more honing in on, is that by the time we get full into this this chorus motion, this isn't really much of a chorus motion because it's the same melodic uh, phrase over and over again. The mel the melody is really just a lot of screaming at this point. Not not all out screaming, but it's it's an emphatic phrase repeated the same way almost every single time. So at that point, if if you can't be enamored with the rhythm as I was, then I think I think the main content of this track could could put a damper on your ability to really rock out with this cuz there it depends on what you focus on, but some things are repetitive and then other things are are it's one of the simultaneous affairs. That's, so, that's all I can so, okay. say for it. There, there is one aspect that I think is a big redeeming factor is when they go back into the verse work, when they get away from the chorus, and they integrate the chorus style into the verse work because it doesn't okay. come back the same. When it does come back, it feels much less separate. The, the, the sound scale that we're dealing with here actually seems to marry that, that chorus to the verse. I mean, it, it, it started off almost as an A and B with me, and then we got an A plus B kind of an idea. They weren't so separate in that you could really make that distinction, but that reinvention of it really did a lot to bring the track together for me. Well, it's not uncommon to, uh, to, to fuse a verse and chorus section in sort, of a, uh, in sort of an instrumental jam where you borrow musical material from each to, to, to build your outro, and this track definitely does that. You had asked a question, what really, if the thing that you liked is part of that old Foo Fighters sound, you were talking about the rhythm, are you referring to the drums, the bass? What particular parts of the rhythm are you referring to, just to be clear? I'm referring, to, I'm referring to that, that, that matter of uh, the, the figurations beneath, beneath the melody and how they choose to kind of sort of jerk you around in the intro a little bit and, and do that little pause, that little halt. It's kind of like, I, I would relate it to stop and go traffic throughout this track. But that's assuming that your your driver is really entertaining. You know, you're in a fun cab ride. You know, perhaps it's a little precarious, but still, it's a story you're going to tell. That's how I would liken this this track. That kind of fun motion to it, because everything else in this album is a lot more stable, by contrast. I, I would say that that's not uncommon for the Foo Fighters. I mean, first of all, the drummer Taylor Hawkins always does a lot of interesting drum work and rhythm work, and and songs that... By guitar, just looking at the guitar might seem a little repetitive. The drum and bass flare it out, make it interesting. Some of my favorite songs by the Foo Fighters, if you just follow the guitar, is very static, like Everlong. It's the same chord over and over again, or more or less. But it's well, there the are other moments on this album where they do that, and that's right. what I'm speaking of. And then, the, but the drum and bass really kind of change it up a bit. Um, I think my biggest complaint is that it just it didn't feel that different. I felt the energy, but you know, it was stuff that I feel like I'd heard before beyond that. I'm not saying it's bad by any means. I just I, I was expecting it to go somewhere. Well then speak to the other point really quick. Just uh, what about those 
those melodic lines have they i mean it was a, it was gruff yeah. i'll describe it as that but again it's gruff and repetitive and a lot of times that can be abrasive i'm not going to go so far as to call this track abrasive but that there's there's not a lot of in, invention in and i think i don't think it's the focus of this track and i i won't hold it against i won't hold that against it uh too much because of it but either way would you consider that indicative of, of previous Foo fighters yeah. work i mean especially the the passionate almost screaming of the choruses i mean he's done that before emphasis okay. in chorus work is is something that he's done quite a bit well emphasis because sure. he's a high energy emphatic singer and when we talk about uh when we talk about the the later parts of this track when it really does start developing this into into a, a collective jam I mean, as I said, the melody, when you were just looking at the verses, is more of a recurring chant. But it does seem to explore a little bit more. It even, uh, even within a certain section here, he, he elevates his register considerably. It, 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 he is in line with the momentum of this track, in line with the rhythm and everything else. And also, if you're looking at, at, at just the chordal motion here, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of B major, B minor. So I think that parallel motion just between... That, that shifting of, of, uh, of scale on the same place, it, it, it persists throughout the song, and I think it helps. No matter what chord we're on, it always seems like we're going back and forth between, between B major, B minor, even though it, it goes down, down to E quite a bit. It's still just, conceptually, you're just looking at those two scales and that two motion. It makes it easier to jam along with for that exact reason. So if you're a musician, I think this is going to be, you know, it could be an eight-minute-long ensemble for you. It, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Oh, this would be you a lot of fun to to play with in a live setting. Yeah, definitely see that. I was much more accepting, I think, once it really got out of the back and forth uh, verse chorus structure, which I, I found, I found irreconcilable. But at the same time, I'm 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 a little upset at the lyrics, and this is something I might point out a few more times. They were just non. They didn't leak. That was a, that's a big thing. They were they were statement lyrics. This is a theme that gets developed through so much of the album. It, it, I, I miss where I want to sing along with it. And at times I like the wacky lyrics, System of a Down, things like that, where you're going, what did he just say? I have to learn the words. I miss the storytelling aspect. This is something that they did, in fact, do. And in their biggest hits, they have this sort of lyrical pieces uh, all coming together. In times like this, I love the chorus. I love the way they sing that aspect, but for, for songs like this, it, it feels like I want more from it. Well, if you're just looking at the lyrics, and I mean, you, you mentioned they don't feel linked. I think they match the manic effect of this, of this track. For instance, uh, if you just look at this one stanza here, Crossroads with nothing to lose, out of the basement and into the news, come change, now shit getting heavy, salvation at the ready, you look... Well, you looked when I walked by, still screaming till I die. You can't find peace. If you can't find a home, you can't survive as an island alone. Black heart with a gaping wound, put back together by a troubled groove. Check yourself, wreck your brains. Where is that PMA? This is an interesting concept just because of the fact that, you, you know, just look at that still screaming till I die. You can see how this has the same exact meter in every single phrase. This is what I meant by identical phrasings, but that's also a valid argument. That's a valid vessel to 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 get out this 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 manic, uh, almost paranoid, um, singing style. This paranoia, paranoid lyrical content. The music reflects that. So I think everything's in the line here. The problem is that it's it. I'm melody is big on me. It's not all about groove, and in this particular case, it seemed like that was their one recourse. 
So it, take it or leave it. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the same point I think we're at it with this track. Um, now we move on to track three, Congregation. Um, I'm starting to sense a theme in the... Uh, content. Content, At yes. least the content. At least the content. Um, and this one was recorded in um, Nashville, uh, Tennessee, and uh, it was featuring Zach Brown on this track. And uh, we get an upbeat intro to start, which was, you know, a first on the record. The re- most the other two tracks had kind of moved into it. This one, we kind of hit the ground running, which I don't really mind. Um, we get a sense of this kind of where we're kind of going to go with this track already. In the very beginnings, it has that kind of southern rock vibe. We're hit with some really nice bass in in the introduction as well. Everything, yeah, I love I love the southern feel because well, I was raised in southern rock. Um, but speaking of the last song, uh, the the comparison I made to it, this uh, it's times like this. What's the name of that song? Times like these. It is times like these. Okay, yes. I'm not I'm not me- remembering incorrectly. Here I'm seeing a lot of similarities just in style musically, which is both a negative because well. I'm getting a new song that sounds like an old one. But at the same time, I love this song. I love the content of how that song was put together. So right away, we're getting, well, what I kind of went to Foo Fighters for. Mm. Uh, see, here's the thing. There was nothing on this album so far that had hinted to anything to anything like this, except perhaps the, the, the super theme that is... Uh, the fact that they're going to be recording in various cities around America. What's well, you're bound to end up in the South some point, and as you said, this was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. So there's that. It's but that that shows that all right. Well, we're in the South. We might as well do something that's more in line with what these producers are typically used to. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. Uh, you can find almost any any variety of music anywhere, although certainly well, some areas more pervasive. it's not just about the producers. I think the, the goal was to try and capture that area. I, I know that it doesn't... Oh, the other two tracks didn't really seem like it as much, although it's hard to say. And it does kind of capture it. I enjoyed the overall sound here, but it was a little cold, I think, in trying to sound so warm, so so capture that southern warmth. And I think also it ended up sounding a little bit dated because... There's a lot of there's a lot of music in that genre that that sometimes they dip easily back you know twenty years thirty years it really doesn't matter sometimes it, it, it com- published any point between nineteen seventy and twenty fourteen <clears throat> that's a, the way a lot of this music works and I'm not saying all of it but but it seems like they went toward that brand and that's what was a little bit annoying you know they captured stuff that would be ready made for the radio and. Just the whole uplifting pop style of this, this, you know, if you're going to capture Southern Rock, why sift it through pop? Why not go a little bit farther? It seems like they're, they're more intuitive. It seems like uh, they had the ambition to be more intuitive. So it left me a little bit confused. I mean, I will admit the track did feel a little bit predictable. But then again, a lot of Southern Rock... At this point, it's, it's very, very predictable. It, yeah. But this song does do a couple of interesting things. One is... Uh, a, a true guitar solo that I did enjoy. I really loved it. Well, yeah, it was later, it was. but it took us a long time to get to that. Point. That was and my point. It just—it's until that it's, it was a waiting game. Yeah, just to do something a little bit different to really start invigorating me. It—it was—I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. In the previous tracks, the wait was was not so long, even if it was longer. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't feel like I was sticking around 
just to see those end credit spoilers well, and, or anything like that. And in the meantime, we're dealing with a lot of with a lot of old tricks. For instance, the, the, this way in which the baseline continue sort of goes against the beat while while just traveling down the major scale. You know, it's almost analogous to what I what I. Uh, what I mentioned in, in, in the first track, although in that case it was just falling down chromatically, but it's 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 a simple way to change your to change your chord by just changing the root and falling down the scale, which is perfectly fair game, you know, for that key that you're in. It it's it's not a bad tactic, and it does give your 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 ver your verse or your chorus some forward motion, I think, early on, but it's a little bit predictable, and they return to it endlessly throughout this entire track. Um, that same riff is reflected uh, much later in uh, coming out of the final chorus. But first, a little bit of a pre-chorus here, which was, again, extremely bland, except for the fact that it built us up to this, this quintessential uh, five-dominant seven chord, which we just start belting out, and that's our pivot chord to go back into the one for the full-on chorus. And that's just, you know... It doesn't get any more predictable than that. 5-7, back to the 1 for your grand uplifting chorus. And this was indeed very uplifting. There's much more... It was a little bit more interesting, I think, because of just the harmonies here. Uh, the vocal harmonies sort of started linking together by, by falling sixths. That's a nice effect. Um, along with that, though, it had the character, I think, of an 80s power ballad. Uh, with somewhat of a, a southern tones that's still with that southern wholesomeness. I think this is where it probably was was its strongest in that particular department. Um, the bass remains strong here. That's important. Uh, and well, then like we return back to that same riff over and over again, coming out of this chorus before finally going into the instrumental. But. What I like about the chorus, though, is this kind of almost group singing together is indicative symbolically of the name of the track, which I kind of like, this congregation of people singing together, um, which adds but, some character to it. But, just by nature but, of it being a chorus? <laughs> the chorus okay. itself. Send in the congregation, open your eyes, step in the light. A jukebox generation, just as you were. The chorus really doesn't say anything. It, it, it's it's a non-content piece as far as anything else that was going on, which is kind of sad because they were actually writing a story in the verses. Well, I met the seventh son. He came for everyone. The day he heard the lightning in the field, I heard him clear his throat. A fork within the road. That night, the Tallahatchie took the wheel. All right, they're actually doing a story, and then to have the chorus bring nothing to the story. Instead, it's a it's a call in and saying, "Well, come listen to this guy." Um, what, the, what, what what are you doing here? That's, I wouldn't. That's, I, a, that's an issue. You're I've got nitpicking here. too much. I think that that a narrative being broken up by the choruses is very common, and I think that's a little nitpicky. Yeah, but when you start talking southern rock, uh, like uh, um, Neil Young's Hurricane, which is about an old boxer. Let me tell you about the hurricane. It, it, it's it's a different type of context because, yeah, it's doing the same sort of chorus, but in that case, I feel like it's more of a call to arms. Listen to this. This is an important story. Here it just comes off as, yeah, come on and listen. And that, I don't think, is really just, just powerful enough. Okay. I don't know. I, I can see what you're saying, but I think it's just... It's a, f it's a very fine point to be making, but if that's the thing that breaks well, the illusion for you, I mean, it, it's, it's it, what it, it is. It, it diminishes any hook that they were trying to build into it for me. Mm. That's that's what it is. Yeah. All right. I don't know. I'm somewhere be 
between you two on this point only because I, I, I do think uh I do think it's fairly shallow in the in the lyrical uh department. Um but on top of that, fine, let's get to the thing that we were about to uh about the good, to the really good part. The good part, yes. Alright. The guitar solo it's not just cool because it's a guitar solo. We've encountered this far too many times where we come across a guitar solo and it's just like, hey, that was a nice reprieve. A lot of times guitar solos can be really empty, really, really just vapid. This particular uh, case, I thought it blended quite smoothly out of that final hook, that final uh, little bass riff, where um, we seem to be shifting here more between like D major, E major. I, I found this within... Uh, within the guitar solo itself, also within that, we get these moments where, let's say just on the D major, you get this climactic triplet. Now this is also kind of been there, done that before in terms of, in terms of uh, climaxes that would occur at this particular moment. But still, when you combine that along with the, the harmonies in the, the guitar solo itself, because there's a lot of double stops going on here, you know, the, the, single, the single instrument sort of trying to capture multiple... Uh, multiple pitches. It makes it a little bit more interesting. Um, and then also, it brings back uh, a recurring tactic in this album to do that little delayed beat work stuff, just as we had in previous tracks, not to the same extent as the as track two, but still just that half-delayed, uh, half-beat delayed crash back to E minor, finally out of the end of this solo. I thought it was tight. I thought it was linked. It was, in, in every respect, attached to the melody, um, even if you weren't particularly invested in the melody itself, well, this has a this has a, a defined climax moment to it. I, I think, at least in that department, this that point couldn't be argued. I agree. It, it builds. It, it does. builds. And it's it's a nice change from where the song was going. Actually, I should say it peaks. I won't say it builds. There's no building. It, <laughs> it just, just it just it just sort of shoots up, you know, for it to come back down and then and then fill out our final uh, our final secondary solo, which is even more interesting. Uh, you guys recall this moment in which, after that that solo, we're much more played down. We're much more, we're kind of almost out of southern rock style for a moment. And instead, here, um, it seems to actually switch this to 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 D instead of uh, I think we started out in E. Well, now here we're in D, and then you just hear the singular guitar, few, very few other instruments, singular guitar, pitch bending itself up to D sharp. And then along that, we start layering on a few other things. This very slow walking bass. Um, and then we start throwing in that flat five. That was even more interesting. And after the final crash here, that's when we return to D major. So we get two consecutive solos, um, both in, in completely unique styles. It was an interesting choice, but it also left me a little bit confused. Because, after all, this had been so uplifting, and then all of a sudden it decides to take it down a notch after its climactic moment. Um, but then again, it also left me with the question mark, which one is the climactic moment? It's almost... They had two really good ideas over their original riff, and wanted to work them both in. I would have liked them to actually be both worked in. It it, it it would have done a lot to integrate. Well, the first was. The first was, and I already well, I don't, I don't the, mean... first, the first solo was completely integrated. The second, arguable. Well, I mean, use that content that they created throughout the whole song. I think that would have definitely been a better way to link all the information together they were presenting. It's, it's hard to go through two very different solos back to back. Maybe even actually including the two solos, but separately would have done a um, a more 
cohesive job here because then you could have done something with that second solo to blend it through perhaps i mean <laughs> you can't really tell a track where to go but no, a, many of no. us have gone through tracks sort of wanting certain things to be developed and i guess i guess that that was my case coming out of this that's um, that's yeah that's exactly yeah. it needed a little bit more but yet again yet again it's really the same situation if we had earlier on the verses themselves the choruses themselves are not the powerful moment in this track it's always the rest yeah it's always either the solo or the build or the or your your secondary solo your bridge what have you or even outro um never the content itself yet Let's go into track four. We got a two-parter. Combo, What Did I Do? And also God is My Witness. This one was recorded in Austin, Texas, and it features Gary Clark Jr. This has an amazing introduction with that grandiose piano. I won't say amazing. It's also, no, no. No, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit been there, done that again, but it, it perpetuates the southern rock sound a little bit, but in this case, more of a southern rock Ballad. I would say slower. I would say amazing only because of the way it kind of turns the way the what the album was doing so far. All right, to really shift the album and to try to a new idea. Yet I still think it's married to the previous sound, like you said, kind of propelling that southern sound we got in previous tracks. So even if even if uh, Congregation was a shift, this was less of a shift and kind of just a complimentary idea. And once again, Matt, where was this recorded? Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. I do think that because we're shifting around various areas of the South, I think this was a good way to represent, well, one side of the coin and now another side of the coin. You know, there's Southern Rock and then there's Southern Ballad. And this was definitely more toward the latter. Um, We start with these very sparse swells, you know, with the drum and guitar. And then in the meantime, we get a slow verse accompanied by piano, right? Um, The Southern in here... I guess is is it's a bit more up for debate, but I think it's a little bit more relevant when we finally crash because here the th- here's the thing: the beginning of this is downplayed. Then all of a sudden, after that, it's not downplayed anymore. Then we go right back to southern rock, very similar to actually what we had, and that's when it sort of got tiresome to me. Which means that all it had going for it in the way of really shifting around that sound was the intro. Again, never the content itself. When it dives into the solid verses and choruses, if there's something lacking, it's great rock. It just doesn't have that extra thing for me. It's like style study at this point. Pick a point, last 30 years, that's where you'll find this track. And in this case, while the bass and the drums were doing fun things, not terribly experimental, but fun things, the guitar was just a little bit too forefront and playing very, very almost standard power chord kind of a situation mm-hmm. just one two three four one two three four and as you're reaching your climax you just start doubling those chords it's 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 pervasive in rock and roll to use tricks like that and here it really stuck in my craw i just couldn't get it out of my head yeah it it, it became sort of the central idea for me for this song which is it, it 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 hurt it big time for me. It's just a shame because the piano intro seemed the piano with accompaniment and the singing, all of that stuff, that slower intro seemed like it was going somewhere unique, something a little different. And then for it to just <coughs> culminate in a predictable track. No, that was a Freudian slip. For it to just <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is funny because by all rights it intended to do the exact opposite. It ex- yeah. expected to build you up into this uh into this much more uplifting track but in general i find that that 
I find that it's just not there. I find that there there was there was a a distinct in, 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 incongruity with the idea work here, and you will find that again when we get to part B of the same exact uh, the same exact idea. Because interestingly, it's called two songs. What did I do? And God is my witness. But when we go into the this God is my witness section here, you'll notice an exact replica of the opening of the opening intro for for what did I do? It's the it's same. Nearly it... the same, except that it expands a little more. This is the one difference, and it is it is the answer to your prayer in some in to some respect. It takes that that piano ballad style and these these interim swells with the drums and the guitar um just sorry building up in the crash cymbals there and then when it goes back the second time you don't just get the piano instead you get these flutes in the background interesting choice this little light flute work like the kind of odd choice that you'd find in like a late beatles work something that george martin would pull out of his ass that's what occurred here but again not developed, because what do we do? We go right back to nearly the same thing. Uh, it it had a different, slightly different character to it, but uh, same basic idea. Felt maybe, it felt like uh, uh, it felt like it may have on, undergone a little bit of a speed increase. Didn't actually happen. Nah. The drums were just a little more complicated. The guitar took a little bit of a backseat. I think it was. I it think did. it was the better. I'm gonna say this. I think it was the better. If let's say these were bored out of the same. Uh, the same initial inspiration, both of these these two-parter songs, I think that the latter was the better idea. So they figured, all right, let's build to that. But instead, you just get this this that 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 jerking around effect. Well, you start me off in 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 one song. You want the song to be something. It wasn't the greatest choice, so you tried to fix it for me halfway through. I don't know. I'm buying it. Truth be told, though, you did ask the question, Steve, if you were going to make two songs so similar, why make them two, two, uh, one together and not just make them two songs? I think if these were two separate songs, they'd be too similar. That's no. why they put them well, together. No, 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 no. And I would think that without the piano work, you could separate these songs. You really could. Uh, as maybe a two-parter song or throw them on different parts of the album. This it, no, you're right. They had it. That's what I meant they by. They had a different flavor difference. They had a different tell them apart. character to it. I think as far as the, as far as the the final build up are concerned, they are two two completely different uh, B ideas attached to the same A idea. Yeah. Uh, it's just odd that they chose to sort of you know <laughs> replicate it essentially. And not give just us musically. Both. Not just musically. Like they couldn't decide, so let's do both. But vocally and lyrically, there's like two word changes in the entire part. It's sung with the same. Or near exact same uh, inflection. I just don't understand why you wouldn't change up the phrasing. You wouldn't you wouldn't change the content in any major way if you're trying to introduce a new section. Yeah, no, I follow you. And also the problem uh, is that they go back to same ideas that they had earlier on the album, not just, you know, within this song itself. One of those ideas, for instance, is that, again, that dramatic falling down the major scale thing. It, it, it's, it's such an old ballad tactic for me. And I think it was much more filled out here in this, in this uh, part B, God is my witness, than it was in, in What Did I Do? Um, maybe it made it, made it, Maybe it made it tighter from a from a uh, from a theme standpoint, but it it it's wearing on me as far as the album is concerned. I think. 
Well, and then the whole track is just cheapened by the fact that it fades out at the end. It builds up to something. Builds up to the that... solo, and the solo was decent, but again, it's not... It's but not... it's adding an energy that they just give up on and just fade the track out. It's like, yeah. then why bother? Like, why not just stop the track? Fill out the solo, let the solo trail off by itself, and then end the track. Why fade it out? It just... The whole track seemed kind of... Lacked focus. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we <go> AKA. To... <laughs> All right. Track five, Outside. Now, by contrast, this had uh, much more, I think, focus just from the get-go. It had the most intriguing intro so far. The it... bass, for one, just outlines this, this E minor triad at the lowest end. Very grungy, very muddy, with this very metallic guitar overhead. I, I at least knew my time period here, and I was, I was, I was content with the honesty. It was recorded in Joshua Tree, California, and uh. it was featuring Joe Walsh. Um, it definitely seemed more rooted in grunge, which, as we know, Mr. Grohl has his roots in. Of he course. was the drummer of Nirvana, of course. Um, and so it does not surprise me that this song kind of went in a, in sort of that direction. It's not specifically grunge, but definitely a grungier sound. But it's sound. why it also struck well, me as more bold and more unique, because it's something they know. You know, I could kind of almost get the sense that in those previous tracks, especially the ones that are uh, geared toward a southern rock style, that maybe they're dealing with somewhat of the unfamiliar. Don't get me wrong, I know they've dabbled. But it, 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 it came across like they were trying to feed it through some kind of lens here. This sounded pure by contrast um, and then on top of that they had some other interesting elements uh, apart from the strong bass here we get this very bright tinny 60s guitar just comping along playing out the phrases as if as, as if uh, it, it, sort of these certain notes were intended to be there instead they're substituted for rests which I think added to the longing uh, droning drudging nature of this song because that was outlined by the bass in the beginning, and you already have that on your mind. Here, it, it seems to be reflected by that uh, by the guitar in those gaps. I also like what he's doing with his vocals here. He's uh, singing in the Abrar style. He lets the vocals trail off a bit. It it sounds it sounds less refined, a lot rougher. But I like that. I like when Dave Grohl. Uh, gets a little harsher with his his vocals. The imperfections add so much character to the way he sings. And what he was saying kept flip-flopping on me. This was a little bit odd. Sometimes I'm going, why would you choose that line? And the very next thing he says is just awesome. Like, purely awesome. To go from girls were boys and boys were girls, which is, I mean, so many songs have just used that idea. I mean, that is part of literature history but find the glitter in the litter that that one that line right there really struck me i love the way he says it and what he's saying find the glitter in the litter great use of rhyme scheme and his in his presentation and just the idea of seeing a garbage pail maybe i don't know outside vegas or outside la or outside someplace that's supposed to be fabulous but have that trashed up fabulous thrown away yeah, no, I, I see exactly it's, it's what It's the saying, back yeah. and forth, though, that's that back bothering and f- me. No, but see, I think you're looking at it wrong. I think it's that <clears> back and forth that's... It's the first line that sets up the second line. The first line's purpose is to give way to the second line. It's a it's a back and forth. And I think if you look at it that way, it, it the first line is just 
there to support yeah. that second But there's one. too much separate idea work here that I don't think they're as entwined as, 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 as you'd make it out to be. I mean, if you look at the whole stanza, there you are dancing at your altar, beautiful earthling, dressed in cashmere, all of your sound echoes in the canyons. Down below, they're dreaming. Hear the sirens screaming. Another time, another. They're, they're hopping around here. They're hopping around with their imagery that I can't get the signature. The, the signature idea. I'm sure there is one, but it's it's not entirely clear to me at, the, at this moment. I'm far more interested in the music itself. Until we switch to the chorus, and yet again, surprise, surprise. I thought the chorus was nothing special. I mean, it's your courtesy, positive again, positive, uplifting chorus. Just goes back and forth between D major and E minor, D major, E minor. Um, one interesting thing was the way he builds it up. There's a long straight road out of the cold, and we can leave it all behind. But at the moment, there's an interruption. He doesn't really get to say behind. Instead, in replace of hind, we enter in with the backup singers. I want to get outside, baby. Let's get outside. I want to get outside, outside of me. It's an interesting concept just there. So talk about flip-flop and that's the biggest flip-flop i see is that the choruses i mean lyrical content versus music good in one respect say the verses bad in the other the the um the choruses they're they're entirely reversed i see the lyrics as, as struggling in the verses while the while the music is is supported and then in the choruses it's the exact opposite so you know something's got to give i guess i don't know i mean this the song does have a kind of schizophrenic overtone a little bit but i think it's 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 more to focus the the choruses are more designed to focus on those final lines and you're kind of building to that i'll give it this though as we come out of the choruses there the, there was this sort of falling away where the where the the vocals feel like they're harmonizing and then and then just drifting into the distance. I thought that was a really, really nice exit. Um, on top of which, I'm pretty sure we go back and forth, except uh, we have another instrumental. This time, not quite a solo, more of a duet, where one instrument, one guitar takes the lead, the other harmonizes, and then they kind of flip-flop back and forth, but sometimes they're together playing a little bit more in tandem, just flat-out doubling, and then sometimes it's, it's really... Uh, it's it's really a, a a to and fro, so that was interesting. Just because you get it's, it's nice to get harmonies within your solos and not just uh and not just a single line melody with a with a with a boring riff beneath it. That kind of goes to that saying, but eh, that's been that's been back and forth on this album. What I was more interested in further is the transition because the transition we get more of those interesting rhythmic effects where I hear. As, as far as counting goes, I hear this in like an alteration between six eight and then seven eight just to finally bring us into the B section. But for the duration of that transition, it, it's not, it's not in, in, intensely magical musically, but it was, uh, it's another one of those graceful transitions where it's, it keeps them from doing what other bands have done poorly in the past, and that is sounding like your sections are just like, like turning on a switch. Yeah. You know, everybody, cue, you know, new section. Instead, they move us through this 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 motion this this pattern so that when we arrive at the new section you kind of could forget whether it was related or not because they maybe fooled you you lo you lose the multiple ideas of the previous track and have a more unifying feature yeah. but i do have a big issue well no a big nitpick because it's not really an issue it doesn't really harm the song but i really don't think it helps it and that was when it gets with the guitars. This is, and the, this, this is the B section that we're going to. This is a part where 
I don't really understand the choice of the instrumentation. I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna disagree with you on this, only because when you really consider the way that the transition functioned, I think, again, I could go, I could probably flip on this. I, I was a little more on John's side earlier, but now I think, uh, I think I'd stand by this as, as a, as, as a unique um, culminating point. I think I wanted this, I've been waiting for this on the album as a whole, and I got it at this track where they took everything down a notch and just decided to, you know, play the light end. And I don't mean for a two-measure intro, as they've frequently given us here. They let it sit for a while. The B section starts off with, I won't want to call it a bass solo. The bass just repeats the same riff it's been repeating, but it's solitary. There's nothing else there. And then it repeats that over and over. At this point, the guitars start entering with these very ethereal droning sounds that come in just sparsely. I would say that the guitar is more of the solo, but it's the most unique solo on this album by deciding to simply rest for beats on end and then come in to fill, you know, impromptu little things here and there. They almost sound impromptu. That's why I could just sort of pass it off as, as sounding ethereal, you know, like a cloud just whisked in and then all of a sudden whisked away as soon as it came in. That That's, that's what this does to me. I understand your opinion, John, that it didn't really seem linked with the rest of the track, especially if you're just looking at the chorus. Well, that's so uplifting and positive. It doesn't seem to yield to this in any respect, but I do think the transition fools you enough to believe that it works. So as far as chronological listen, I think this has a smooth sonic effect as an overall track. And I think that the... The etherealness that we get from this kind of B section is less about spacey and effective Kevin Spacey. No, I'm kidding. In the fact of going into outer space, as often sections like this are, I think it's just this vast space of an area. Or if you're outside looking at the sky, it's space from Earth. There's just looking at the night sky, feeling contemplative. And that's where I really think that that transition takes us. I think that whether the lyrics support it or not, emotionally, I kind of go with it. But I'm, well, the two things that bother me about it... Lyrics kind of match it, at least as far as the, the, the B section is concerned. The, the, the problem I have with it, and I think this is what it really boils down to, is, is twofold. One, it goes back into the more original... Uh, the more uh, A section idea of what had been presented earlier without really keeping the theme of that B section there. So it does feel divorced for me when the song kind of goes back to where its roots were. You're talking about and just it, musically. Musically. Okay. And the the other aspect, and this is the big one, is the rest of the song feels too grounded for that. It feels too much of the here and the now on every aspect, vocals, lyrics, and music. It, it's It's too earthy for that contemplative nature. But I think, see, and I, that's what I was agreeing with you earlier on, but I think that in retrospect, I think it makes sense as to why they would decide to just flip that on its end. Um, especially when you consider the concept of wanting to be outside and outside of yourself, as, as, as Matt described. I think that it makes perfect sense to combine something that, as you said, is so earthy on one side and then so ethereal on the other. And when you look at the lyrics, especially in the second... Uh, uh, in, in the, when this B section begins. Oh, I found the space between the spaces, standing in the nothing, and time will cling to as the wind will beat you down. And the wind, the only sound, there's something out there. There's a long straight road 
out of the cold and we can leave it all behind. Of course, that goes back to, to the chorus. But the, this is that moment of, of feeling this desire for something else, something greater than yourself, something greater than even you know, perhaps, which is what the stars obviously have always done to every culture since the beginning of time, um, is just make you dream of better things, not even knowing what the hell that is. So oh, I think I it's will... a nice concept, if maybe a little bit removed. Could have been done a little bit better. It's not great, but it's a nice moment. I can't fault it. Yeah, yeah I, I'll, I'll agree. It's just I have, I'm not there yet. Okay. Now that's, that's <laughs> as fair an argument as any, on which we go to track six in the clear. Which was recorded in New Orleans. New Orleans. Well, New Orleans. Okay, in the clear. Oh, a and steady... it was, wait. Oh, and yes. it was featuring the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. But here, wouldn't know it. Here, well, they might have done production on it. They might have helped them produce the track, which is why they're not really featured very prominently instrumentally. Okay, well, I should probably mention. Of course, in the beginning, I would think that's them. You can kind of hear a sort of sort of a horn thing in the background going on. It's, but it seems like the kind of thing that it can be just be be done by guitars themselves. It's not really the kind of thing that leaps out to you as yeah. as new instruments. Frankly, the flutes a couple tracks earlier did much more than than this. Uh, than this claims to do, if if even it does it at all. So, I gotta focus on on the other things in this track, and those are things are not very good. Okay. I found this track blatantly annoying. Yes. It was G major over and over and over and over again. It was extremely just G major. extremely predictable uh, changes within that. Yes, it changes now and then, but frankly, the majority of this is just strum 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 yes oh gosh the introduction of a single steady strum note and a kick drum is fantastically overplayed i did not want it to do that and it just stays there it's it stays for at that level for so long that even when it starts adding additional elements, Which I does. can't get away from it. I, I just agree. can't. I agree. And it does shift up and down a little bit on the scale, but it's not enough to really perk my interest. It's got other things. It's got the pause for effect kind of a situation going on in the chorus. The choruses are the, are the moment where they have those changes, and yes, they do have that pause for effect thing, that sort of beat-delayed crash, which I've cited several times already for the first time in a bold way on the second track and several times since, but here, I'm kind of over it by now. That itself is not enough to make this track leap out to me in any stretch, especially when your next verse simply returns to the, to the strumming. It, it makes this come across to me kind of like a, like a pop ballad. Um, we may have had Southern Rock Ballad up to this point. Well, this is just straight-up pop ballad. I can't think of anything else to, to describe it as. It's not pushing the boundaries in any other respect. Um, it's just the same phrase over and over and over again over over each chord. I, I, I just... It was... It had very little going for me. Oh, no, no, no. When they reintroduce the verse, they do add the almost token double note of the electric punctuation of the guitar. It's silly things like that that really were just going, what are you guys doing? It's It was cliche after cliche after cliche for me. One it for us was, was the choiring. They bring in, I oh, think yes. it was more of a choir, you know, linked uh, several different voices singing at once. Um, perhaps then, some of them doubled, I don't know. But that that itself is is not enough to make this track seem grand enough to, to escape the, the drudgery. I just, I couldn't. I can say that there wasn't a choir. It, it does list that... 
many of the band members have done backing vocals and gang oh, vocals. Oh, yeah. As they call, I, I say, that's why I say choir ring. Choir you ring. Know, oh, they, God, where God, they God. choir along. I mean, the, the biggest fault of this song is it's boring and predictable. I mean, that's the problem. You can be repetitive oh. in a rock song. Yeah, but when you repeat the chorus eight times... Uh, I wasn't done. What you can be boring in a rock... You can be repetitive in a rock song, but still be entertaining. The problem is that this song was both repetitive and not entertaining. The same can be found in the lyrics. The lyrics themselves are quite repetitive. Um, you know I'm not in the clear. You are not in the clear. Don't you go count me out now, dear. You know I'm not in the clear. You are not in the clear. Don't you go and count me out now, dear. It just repeats over and over. Of course, that's the, that's the chorus, so it's bound to do that. And then there are other moments. There are places I don't remember. There are faces I don't remember. How could I forget you painted stars into the skies? We do have some connectivity here. Um, coming like a rebirth, marching in a second line. I see the longing within this. At the same time, I also sort of see that manic, uh, kind of like I cited earlier, there was a manic moment, I think, earlier in this album. And here I see it, but I don't think that strumming alone, especially when you're strumming in, in, in G major, as it seemed to, I don't think that alone conveys manic properly. I think you'd... I think, frankly, this would have been the time to probably go back to their more interesting rhythmic choices if they wanted to convey this idea along. This, this, this alone is just, it feels weak to what they want to do. And I can see through this to what they want to do. I've been manic, but this ain't manic. <laughs> All right. I've got first-hand experience on that well, one. Well, you know, they're different people, so I accept that perhaps this was just one lens, one's interpretation. I just, you know. As far as we're hopping around on the album here in terms of sound... Uh, in terms of sound qualities, in terms of genres, um, and because of different producers, maybe that's a reason. Maybe. But, again, we, as we cleared, these songs were written prior to. So I, I, don't think, I don't think that's enough of an excuse in this particular case. You'd think they would try to blend that together a little bit better. And that brings us to track seven, Subterranean. So this, this one has an interesting beginning because while we've had slow starts before... On tracks, this one has a slow acoustic croon that's that's a little standoutish from the previous ones that we had heard already. Um, it it in fact stays that way for the whole first verse. You get a whole first verse before the track actually picks up. It was reminiscent of Oasis's Wonderwall, of the Verbs' uh, Bittersweet Symphony, uh, of Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun. So this is definitely contemporary artists that have been alongside the Foo Fighters, which Foo Fighters themselves have done stuff like this before as well. It was a nice change of pace. Beyond that, a lot of the tracks that you're mentioning, you know, they they, they intended to sort of be the pop rock ballad that was a little bit more emotional, a little bit more introspective, and uses interesting chord progressions to try and relate uh, to try and relate a very complex storyline, something that's not quite as easy to convey, not something as simple as love or loss, but perhaps the the combination of all the trials and tribulations that lead to both and all the in-betweens as well. That's the kind of point in which you would want to use interesting chord progressions. The beginning of this track follows suit. It begins with somewhat of a mysterious progression. We begin with sort of the C pedal to uh, in F-sharp minor 7, which is interesting. That's That's... I think the most intriguing overall chord that we've had together, even though I still think the uh, the grunge bass wins a few tracks earlier. Still, it's interesting. 
We start to fall, though. We start to fall chromatically down to the diminished. This is somewhat of a repetition, but it's through a different lens because we operate, in this particular case, by having a pedal at the bottom with the full chord on top, right? In other words, you, you put the, the chord over, say, the three or over the five. Um, and as you drop the root, it does change it a little bit. But because the upper register is a little bit fuller, I, I, I think this had more power to it. I want to defend this intro as, as uh, being just as mysterious as it, as it laid itself out to be. And not just the intro, but the actual progression of how they uh, change it and adapt it and really expand upon it. Yeah. But it, it peters out. Yes, it peters out as it gets farther along here. Because each, as I as we went deeper into the in the verses and choruses, I found that each chord, as much as it sort of tries to be evasive, as the intro succeeded in, instead, it seems like each chord presents a, a sort of a confusing emotion. Like I can't get the signifying point of this song, the signifying um, ideal behind. I think I, we have to look to the lyrics for that if we're even going to try and sift through this. Reading from the beginning. Nothing left within, I've been mined. Hell and back again, subterranean. I've been digging in down inside, I will start again, subterranean. So you clearly get the idea that he's been down at the bottom. I really like that phrase, I've been mined. That's, that's tantamount to sounding like you were gutted, you know, but, but with explosions. It's, 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 it's or heartbreaking. Even system, or, or even systematically, like you were purposely taken. Right. That is a great idea. I love the way they do that. And it matches it matches up to a very dark level uh in the in the song. That that, sure. that that's shifting downward. Especially as far as that first verse goes. But then, but, but then, here, now that when you go over to that second a uh, second uh second stanza. But the truth is so unkind. What do you know? How low the sky? Yet the truth is so unkind. What do you know? How low the sky? All this following, I will start again. So you had a positive moment there, just lyrically, but instead, during the second stanza, we're still very much doubtful of our future, and yet the music decides at this moment to suddenly take more of a romantic turn. I, I don't know, I couldn't grapple with this. And as I said, certain chords will present conflicting emotions, like you are in different places at different times, but specifically, the fact that the lyrics... I mean, this particular stanza... Flat out romantic. In this moment, we're we're not altering, and still perhaps until perhaps the the bare end. At that point, then we start shifting around the chord. But for that moment, we got more positive. While we're saying the truth is so unkind, it I don't know. But you can Timing. say I will start again and not be positive. That can be bitter. That can be negative. But the music wasn't at that moment. That's the problem. It's it's it's. it's Again, each chord is just presents this 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 emotion that conflicts with the last. I see the reasons behind that, but in this particular case, there just didn't seem to be uh, much of a goal here. There didn't seem to be that that driving uh, instrument that perhaps reflects your character. I don't see the center point. I just see the abstract idea of this piece, which I think is a noble um, a, a noble goal. And I think other artists we've reviewed have have done similar things to varying degrees of success. And when you have lines with bring all your lives, leave them deep in the dirt. Oh, no, you don't. Pull down my eyes, lay me deep in the earth. It's morbid. You, yeah, sure. but you couple it with almost uplifting happiness kind of idea, romanticized. That, that's just 
that's just a hodgepodge. That's no. just flip flopping. At the tail end, though, I'll give it some credit only because I think that that moment it really the music did start to get very morbid because it's already starting to wind down on its way into the final track here. Um, you get at this at this transition, the guitar starts sort of droning on. You get this odd guitar twang uh, to it, and and it's 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 starts to sound alone, you know, completely alone with nothing else along with it. All of the other instruments drop out. It's just the solo guitar almost maybe answering that that prayer again. Now we have a character. Took a while for him to be uh, in, in the spotlight, but we have a character. And we're going to get a lot more of that as it bleeds directly into track eight, final track in the album, I Am a River. I Am a River was recorded in New York, New York, where we are located. Um, and it was guested. Oh, I forgot to mention, um, Subterranean had Ben Gibbard on the track. Ah. This, this one has uh, Tony Visconti and Kristen Young. Um, so, I Am a River, yeah, it, it, it perfectly blends into I Am a River seamlessly. And we get this gorgeous post rock intro that kind of blew me away, honestly. I wasn't expecting anything quite like it. Not that they're not capable, it's just that's not the direction the album seemed to be going. Ethereal uh, is a word that I don't think would be best applied to this because this is the kind of thing that has character. Ethereal implies that it's almost like an interlude. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be, but very often as, as we've encountered it so far, we experience it as the bridge or the interlude or the instrumental or whatever. But this is the center point of the track. This is the focus. As, as, we, as we exit that transition and we go into this, we get this, this sort of post-rock sound different genre for what we've had and it's guided by these recurring triplets triplet 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 over and over and over and over and over again um using the guitars you 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 still feel you you feel the beat um you feel the beat pretty solidly actually but when you combine all those triplets together you just kind of get this almost ambient effect and yet this persists for quite a long time within this you start getting multiple guitars uh, I think I, I I think at some point I heard almost up to three gar- the guitars together. Although it could be just uh, the no, blending effect. No, no, of, of three guitars. That's right. Three guitars. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, one is much more in the forefront, and we combine the the constantly changing uh, uh, patterns uh, patterns between the the guitars at the bottom end. Those guitars are taking the triplets, and they constantly change from chord to chord to chord, while the single guitar at the top is taking more of a melodic line. But it's very loose, it's very slow, and together we get a lot of sevenths, we get some ninths, and it's so warm, so gentle, it's almost sensual. And they build up, they build up, they build up, and then they don't go too hard too fast. And this was one of my favorite parts of this song, just from an analytical point of view. They actually build to something... And then don't ruin it, as we've described many other people ruining in the past. And one they example. don't just bring everything in at once to try to do a crescendo. They actually let it take a step back, breathe, and then do it again. Build it right back up, but this way, this time in a more interesting way. We'll explain this in a couple of ways. For instance, uh, one way it does this is by yielding itself to an entirely new rhythm. For instance, we get that opening pattern, which is defined by those triplets, and then it's like... Another guitar stepped in in the distance just to, to, to overlay perhaps the last few beats of this first section 
with a different rhythm that was a lot more steady, a lot more duple meter. And there was this this bleed over where they both seemed to be playing at once for just a couple of seconds, and then finally we're entrenched in a new rhythm. It's very subtle. You barely even notice it because it's 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 smooth. It's it's graceful. And then we get a, a new a new comping instrument. The, uh, this this instrument, the sepsin, it's another guitar riff, but it's a it's a slow riff. I would barely even call it a riff. I, I think I'd call it a whole figuration unto itself. That's um that that sort of comps along with 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 melody, and it has this motion to it. It can sometimes sound like it's being a little repetitive, um, but at the same time, that's the the essence of rumination. It's 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 stuck in a loop of 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 sort of analyzing itself time and time again, restates itself, doesn't come back Im immediately, not soon enough to be a riff, instead it comes back later, which is why I, I, would, I would liken it to, to a comping instrument. It's very, very interesting. And then we finally get this cutout, after the build, where there's no instruments at once, and this is just a singular moment, no instruments on a particular, particular rest, and then there's this little harmony, a single guitar steps in, just to deliver us right back into that section again. Beautiful moment. It's not like the uh, uh, cross between trend, uh, between sections or anything. It was a hiccup in the single section that is this entire song. Beautiful. And it's one of those few times that I can truly point at a beautiful use of silence, which is something that's hard to do, and we've talked about it on past podcasts. Yep. And I think at this point, I started getting frustrated with the album as a whole. Because this song, as it goes through the motions again, and then eventually becomes almost like a rock song. And even that part, it, 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 the B section, the, the real part where it feels like an honest-to-goodness B section. I still it think it's all to one lose. section, but you're right. There, there is... Uh, no, yeah, no, no, I'll, no, not, I'll the, not, the, right. not the reinvention or the A-prime idea they kind of do, but when they actually go full rock, that almost loses it for me. But then they take it and they meld it with their first, their A section, brings it back together, saves it for me. It's, it's almost like they purposely lost a little bit of cohesion, a little bit of the idea they were going with, just mm. to show what they could do when they start fixing it back together. I mean, these levels aren't still reaching highest of heights. I mean, we're it's not still talking... dominated by power chords in yeah. general. I mean, we we do kind of fall slowly out of the post rock feel. But here's the thing: I define this as sort of one giant section, this whole song, only because it all feels so gradual. It yeah. all feels like like everything just blended perfectly into the next. And that's actually something this entire album has been very, very good at. You may argue with certain artistic choices within those sections, although I wasn't going to argue with anything as far as the opening section of this track was concerned. Um, you could argue that maybe it's a little bit too power chord driven by the end here, but frankly, it gets very emotional within that. And it's such so still so slow, this slow build that I have, I find myself having a lot of patience with this track. I'm just along for the ride. It invites me in 100% of the way. And then, of course, for the final stretch, the tail end, we bring in strings, you know, to, to quite a, a big way. And it's that just... It's the track, I'm a River. It's the track itself that makes me more disappointed with the rest of the album. Oh, I don't think it's that much of disparity. I'm not going to pull a, this track ruins the rest of the album. It's but, um, no, it doesn't ruin the rest of the album. We but never it had shows a... the innovation they can and do do. But 
just decided I not do to think do it's on a, giant a lot disappoint- of it. I think I agree with him. It's a very, it's a big disappointment because it gave me the aha moment that I've been waiting for this entire album. They didn't really give me that too much throughout this. I don't this. mind waiting until the end to get an aha moment, though. But I Sure, didn't... but a lot of this did not seem like it was building to this. And there was mm-hmm. no forecasting so... of this sort of an idea. And uh, and uh, that's 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 the thing. I take take, has... take just a few a few lyrics here. There's a secret found a secret behind the Soho doors. We get the New York imagery. There is a reason. I found a reason beneath the subway floor. I found the water, the devil's water, and walked along its shore. Is that what you want? The channel's changing, the heart is racing from voices on a wire. The soul is yearning, the cold is burning, the ember starts a fire. Okay, some of this stuff gets a little bit campy, but at the same time, I kind of like the idea of just finding unexpected pieces of joy in, in, in unexpected places. I like that concept, and I think the uh, the, the whole facilitation here was, was perfect. And what I really like is the imagery. We get a sense of New York in this track, as well as very passionate vocal delivery. And one thing I've always liked about Dave Grohl is that even though his voice isn't always melodic, it isn't always, you know, sweet, he, he's got a gruff, very 90s rock voice. You know, he's one of those 90s rock singers who has a gruff, rough, and but it's a, a voice that's not left of passion. He When he screams, it's not like Screamo. It's not like other artists who just scream at the top of their lungs. There is an inflection, a passion, and an emotion when he screams that he delivers. Those screams are for emphasis, not just because he feels like screaming. Sure. And, and I really love that here. By the time he starts repeating the chorus over and over again, I don't even care because it's how he's saying it that I'm just a- a- along and enraptured. Wow, I silenced the podcast. That doesn't happen often. Um, well, we're, we're, we're due. We are due. <laughs> it's our moment for uh, wrapping up. It is. Um, so one of you suckers gets to go first. Rochambeau? <laughs> I'll go first. I'll go first if you want. All right, fine. Foo Fighters, I never really got into the same way Storm did. Because um, I know he's a super fan about them. Only because whenever he's driven a car, inevitably they are on the playlist that we're listening to. This album feels just like the Foo Fighters. But I'm not familiar with their newest stuff. This is this is going back to the mid to late 90s. That's what I'm really familiar with. And for me to go, obviously that's Foo Fighters, as I'm listening to this album, is more against this album than for it because their sound is very well it's iconic for them and it's a it's a quality sound i do love the vocals because well they 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 are very humanizing yet still the the levels that can be reached are are amazing and the the glimpses of inspiration I'm seeing throughout this album is the same sort of stuff I I saw in their first few, that's that's a positive. But it's coupled with the same sort of stuff that was on their first few albums. This feels less like a new work and more like a compilation. Now the theme work is kind of there. We can make connections between many of the different songs, uh, especially when you're talking back to back. But it's not very solid, and it's arguable. I can I can say that, yeah, it feels sort of like a road trip, but I don't really feel iconic pieces of the country they traveled to. 
I can't say that anything besides uh, Congregation and I'm a River really felt like a specific place. It's it's a good album. There's nothing bad on it. That's that's what's a shame. I mean, it's all just really listenable and kind of mainstream. I don't really want to talk it down too much because while I'm not going back to this album, I don't hate on it. It's just I have a lot of nitpicks more than anything else. So I think it's just just about perfectly average. It's a solid it's a solid 3.1. I'll say it's just above the herd, but it's it's very much mid-90s to today sort of mainstream for me. All right. Um, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as far as I don't really have any background with, with Foo Fighters, so of course, much like last week, and this was, the tables were all flipped where I had, um, I had all this experience with TV on the radio, and you guys were coming in expecting to kind of, well, just, well, give me the beginning sounds of TV on the radio, and I was totally disappointed to, to introduce that as, 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 as the sound, although it still had it. In this particular case, we're dealing, I mean, I still gather that this is Foo Fighters, correct, Matt? Yes. There's no, there's no uh, departure from form, really. No moments, maybe, but not overall. So they typically do things like dip down to southern rock when they want to, go back uh, to drunk runs when they want to. Yeah, it's not. Con- I mean, they're a heavy rock act, and there are elements of other rock and roll that comes through. Um, Dave Grohl is a very talented musician who can play just about anything, and has guested in many a band. I mean, he was a member of Queens of the Stone Age. He was a member of Nirvana. He he's actually part of them Crooked Vultures. Yeah, he's actually produced albums where he played everything. Diversity is good. Having uh, the ability to adapt yourself to varying uh, to varying methods, varying talents is always good. I think that, that enables you to do more things in your music. Um, but this album definitely seemed just a little bit scatterbrained. Uh, not 100% of the way. It just seemed to lack that that focus. If it wasn't perhaps for the last track, there was a real culmination there, which which I thought was deeply emotional. But there was just something missing along the way. Um, we get kind of this back and forth, where in the first track, all right, great, it's fun. It is actually quite progressive for an opening track, uh, for your first track on the album and for the single. Um, and then we get to track two, all right, we're playing a lot more around with rhythm, but at the same time, we're kind of bland in other departments. Track three shares the same faults. At the same time, it offers us this bizarre B section that takes us above and beyond. Uh, track four has an interesting concept of, like, splitting two ideas and, and giving them different ends within the same track. I do think it developed it eventually, but it was kind of sloppy in the interim. And from there, it's just, you know, onward and upward. This, the same pattern of going back and forth. Um, you'll get good solos, as track five did. You'll get... <laughs> yeah, I guess I can't really say much for track six, to be perfectly honest. I think that's a flat-out negative. I can't be shy about that. But then track four built it back up with this with this concept of... of, um, of uh, multiple emotions embedded in embedded in your, your, your singular chord you progressions. track seven, you said track four. Track seven? Yes. yes. Did, did I say track four? Oh, I meant track seven. Track, yes. Subterranean, of course. Um, it has these various emotions embedded in the chord progressions themselves. Still sloppy. Appreciate the concept. And then track eight is, for all intents and purposes, wonderful. I don't know what to say to an album like that. I guess, Matt, I, I guess John's kind of on, on, on the right uh, track by saying that 
it's a good album that has flaws and and nitpicks. I do think the funny thing is I want to be a little bit harsher at the same time. I don't think that's worth a lower rating. I still think that constitutes an average album. Um, I was somewhere in the threes. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna bump it up just to a three point two five because there are moments here which which really are gorgeous. It's just it's it's the in betweens that just seem to struggle. Maybe I'll be maybe I'll do three point no, no, three point two five. That's solid. It's round. <laughs> um the Foo Fighters, <clears throat> as I'm starting to lose my voice, it's been a very talky last handful of days, um, are one of my favorite bands of all time. I tend to gravitate towards 90s rock. This is not a secret with my love of Eve 6, Matchbox 20, The Foo Fighters, Weezer. I do the same thing, yet we, we, we rarely cross bands. Right. <laughs> Different sects of the 90s. Third Eye Blind, who I think have a new album coming out, so keep an eye out for that. Um, Uh-oh. I... I, I like a lot of this stuff, and at a base level, it's very hard for me to just hate it. Weezer tested my patience, and I did hate quite a few of their records in the last couple of years. But beyond that, a lot of these bands, I either like it or I love it. I loved the Foo Fighters' last record. It was incredible, and if you haven't heard Wasting Light, please go listen to it. But this isn't that album. It's the next one, and it's a different album. I think my biggest complaint with this record is I don't get the different cities other than for Dave Grohl to continue to grow his repertoire of incredibleness by becoming a director. He directed Sound City, which I still have not watched, but I want to watch, a feature about the recording studio of the same name. He wants to dabble more in film and and directing, and from what I've heard from other people, he's done a great job. I think this album, they wanted to make this album to begin with, but it was also a vehicle to further... And pair with the HBO series, which I've not yet watched. Whether that adds dimensions to this, I'm sure, actually, I guarantee it will add dimensions to this. Actually, the reviews I saw on it rave about the actual documentary. That said, we're here to review the music. Um, There's no doubt of the talent of Dave Grohl and the rest of the Foo Fighters. They are a talented band that do great work. This album, though, lets me down. I wanted more of Wasting Light. We talked at length about how Green Day expanded with American Idiot going towards a different sound. And then 21st Century Breakdown was sort of in the same vein, and then it stumbles after that. I just need to steer you on this one point because I'm genuinely curious. Um, You say it lets you down. We've had this experience almost exclusively in terms of wanting more. We have this all the time with uh, with every single album. That itself is not the end of the game. We all want things in our imagination. In fact, I think there was a song in this album that covered that theme rather well. But were at any moment at any moment of this album, were you bored? No. No. Uh, Um, Minorly on track six, the one we all hated. But that said, I wasn't so bored that I wouldn't listen to it. Um, listening to this, I would listen to this record straight through and I will go back to this record. There was never a moment where I was, I hate this. There's no, that's hate is not boredom. Hate, hate is, hate is you are visibly in pain, you know, in the interim. Boredom is just, you know, I've heard it before. My, my experience with this album was the reason I, it's sort of in the lower threes for me. It's just, not just because, I mean, they're great fun interludes, but they're sectional. Then I find myself waiting through a lot. I find myself just waiting through the interim to get to the good part. I'm exactly there, yeah. Was I ever bored with the record as a whole? No, but there were moments that I was bored. 
And I think that's why I was disappointed. Every other Foo Fighters album I, I have, I've listened straight through and have rarely felt bored. Uh, there are sometimes tracks, maybe. So this isn't, this isn't by far the worst record they've ever made, I don't think. Um, I would, it's been a while since I've listened to the full discography. But there were definitely moments where I was bored and I was just waiting to move on to the next thing. Um, but that said, I still really like the record. I like that they tried something different. I love the concept. I love it. I, I think it's a brilliant idea to try and record every track in a different city. I wish it reflected more in the sound of the songs. But that said, I really like that they tried something very unique. That's more on than anything else why I wanted to do this album because it was a unique concept. And it, it definitely is to promote, I think, the, his directorial stuff. And I'm looking forward to getting to sit down and watch that. Um, but in wrapping up, I don't think I was as bored as you guys. I think it's above average, but not by much. It's a 3-5 for me. I like it. I think that the Foo Fighters have done better. Um, there are definitely tracks that have been worse. But all in all, I, I still like it. It's still Foo Fighters and still Dave Grohl. Um, truthfully and honestly, Dave Grohl is one of my musical idols and one of my heroes because... And we don't often talk a lot about our musical idols. We've talked about bands that have influenced us. But Dave Grohl is absolutely my musical idol as far as why I listen the way I do, why I got into what I got into. From Nirvana to Foo Fighters to whatever, he, he, he's a man who's never satisfied with what he's doing and does more. And he also doesn't give a shit. <laughs> what do I mean by he doesn't give a shit? I know it's a strange thing to say. Whatever do you mean? What I mean by that is whenever I've seen Dave Grohl in an interview, whenever I see him operating online, tweeting, you know, talking to other people, he, he does what he does because he wants to do it. He does it because he loves to give his fans this joy of the, the talent that he has. He's not doing it to prove to someone anything. He doesn't really care what the reviews or the opinions are. He's going out there and making art because he wants to make it. He directed because he wanted to direct. He played drums because he wanted to play drums. He learned guitar because he wants to play guitar. He, my favorite quote from Dave Grohl of all time is, if I knew that the band would stick around, I would have never named it the Foo Fighters. <laughs> he, and I, I'm probably paraphrasing a bit, but he's gone on record as saying, the reason he named the band the Foo Fighters is because... After Nirvana, he didn't know where his career was going yet, and he didn't think... He thought he was done. He thought after Nirvana he was done. So he made another band. He's like, ah, oh, we'll be the Foo Fighters, whatever. And he's admitted to saying he doesn't love the name, but it's got this power behind it. But I think that's why... That's why he comes across as so down-to-earth and so brilliant. In other Frankly, words, in other words, an el elemental in your, in your concept of idolatry is humility. Yeah, sure. Honesty and humility is right. very important. Where for a lot of other people, you know, the concept of an idol is is a uh, is some kind of diva. <laughs> it can be. I mean, there are plenty of those who also have good qualities. I'm sure. 
That's why this is an interesting, uh, an interesting topic because when you consider the fact that that people hoist any kind of artist on on this ridiculous pedestal, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, you realize the clout that that artist can have. But this is less about the influence that the artist can actually have on you. It's more, uh, or rather, on the public, but really more about how you interpret it, how you take their their every action or their every motive as. Uh, as not just inspiration, but also a guide with which to look to, to run your life or yeah. live by. Well, I've spewed about my idol, which I could go on about, but how about you, John? Do you have one? Uh, yeah. And <laughs> he sounds reason, so personal to you. I'm just, it's kind of, no, it's kind of similar yet completely different at times. This is a guitarist who. I mean, he was good friends. Well, not maybe not good friends, but friends with Clapton and Hendrix and the greats of the 60s, 70s. Yet, iconically, he kind of gets glossed over. George Harrison. I mean, if you want to pick the greatest musicians, George Harrison, not someone I actually really talk about too often because he was such a f- non-focal point of the Beatles. Even though his guitar work was the reason I believe the Beatles were so great. Between the guitar work of he provided and the lyrical work Paul and John did. But growing up, two of my three favorite songs and two of my top five songs to this day were was Here Comes the Sun and Something. Both written by him. And they're both, just in my opinion from a band that was intriguing every time they produced a note, the two most intriguing Beatles songs ever written. Something being the love song it is, being so indecisive yet so powerful, has always touched me. And I I would love to feel that way once in my life. It's that powerful of love song. I would consider it the best love song of all time. Here Comes the Sun is just pure distilled hope. And it really is my favorite Beatles song because it is just a, the culmination of the darkness passing. I can't, I can't, I have to stop doing whatever I'm doing when I hear Here Comes the Sun. When that plays on the radio, I have to sit and listen. Amazingly powerful. And to have a guy like George, who, when he wrote them, like, he was just trying tooth and nail to get songs on the Beatles records because Paul and John were making almost the entire record year after year, year after year after year. Um, for him to be such a high level of a guitarist, yet willing to be more of a supportive role instead of the flashy one, instead of actually the lead guitar... For him to to always just allow himself to be the guy holding up the other guys, I guess I want to put it. He he was the one that that always was supported. Even when he was doing his own work, he it it never felt flashy. It just he he was powerful. So it sounds like to you, important in an idol is subtlety and um, kind of the underdog rooting for the No, underdog. no, I wouldn't put it that way. I would just say it's the ability to No, that was true. He'd pick Ringo. Yeah, there That's you go. True. It's the ability to make a statement without yelling. 
That's what he was always able to do. He was Harrison was always able to get through to me in his work without having to yell it. And that is a powerful way. If if your whispers are heard just as strongly as your shouts, I mean, you you must have something important to say. That's a great way to put it. Um you are probably already familiar with my idol as we reviewed her album episode 111 my brightest diamond shower warden is easily one of my idols in music because of what she has done for music lately i've talked at length about how how sort of obsessive i am about finding this 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 combination of a composer who is not just uh, a fluid composer but a songwriter as well someone who can reach out to the masses because it shows i think a lot of artistic integrity from a musical standpoint something you can only do from music although it it, it crosses over into other areas of art as well for instance the kind of a visual artist who doesn't go full abstract but who still makes your artist i mean makes your 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 fans think just beyond the, the, the bare minimum of what art is. Anything that strikes something is important, but Shara Warden goes so much further. Her music in general incorporates these fluid, beautiful uh, motifs. At the same time, she keeps it grounded in, in, in the kind of thing that you can still rock out to, the kind of thing that is still grounded in, in fun rhythms, not just rhythms that are purposely elusive as so many... Uh, as so many composers try to do, it, there's, it's. I make no mistake about the fact that um, I make no bones about the fact that my uh, that my some of my favorite pieces are by artists who are long gone, dead, unknown, and probably undertaught in schools. Um, these are some of my, uh, my 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 favorite pieces. But frankly, there is one fault that I do have to say for these artists is that many a, a lot of the time they were very caught up in the. Uh, in, in their own work, very caught up in their own projects to the point where they're not very connected to society. If you're doing something as beautiful as it may be, but you're not, your, your intention is never spotlight, your intention is never to, uh, is, is, is never sort of to bring people who might not know much about music along with you up to your level, then that, that's, that's a disservice in many ways then, okay, great, you're doing great things for art, but you're just continuing the single tree branch along, and it's getting farther and farther from the tree. But artists like Shower Warden are determined to keep the tree as full as possible, to keep it together, looking rounded, looking beautiful. That's what she does for music, and she's done it through almost every single album in, in, in strikingly different ways. For instance, her previous album, uh, prior to the one that we reviewed in episode 111, which was uh, This Is My Hand, her 2011 album was... was extremely fun extremely uplifting um that's why she brought in uh other musicians like uh the chamber ensemble y music to sort of hoist it up because they were a tight group and they did everything from other compositions to also renditions of pop tunes it was it was a match made in heaven and i just i i respect any musician who can do that any and her personality shows through in her music extremely so that that is my idol. It's what I would like to be as a musician. It's everything. Um, obviously, my perspective would come as a musician in this department. Uh, but I mean, both of your 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 idols, I think, are for extremely valid reasons as well. I mean, I think that it's important to have idols, but not idolize. And what I mean by that is, it's important to be pushed by someone else to see someone who can do something. And go, 
I want to do that. If they can do it, I want to do it. That's what a good idol does. When you mm. idolize someone, you put them on this pedestal, make them untouchable, it, you're delusioning yourself. You're or disillusioning yourself, rather. You're not giving yourself goals or setting anything. Like I've said on record many times when people talk to me about the website and the podcast, my inspiration for starting Crash Chords, besides a nudge from an ex-girlfriend uh, at the time, was Chris Hardwick and The Nerdist. And I've compared stuff to them a lot because he was one of the people at the forefront for podcasting and specifically honed blogging websites. And watching him grow challenged me to grow and gave me ideas and made me want to do more. And that kind of drive to do something more when you're invested in the arts is immeasurable and incredibly important. And if you don't have that, find it. There are artists out there, and they don't even have to be someone famous, someone with eight albums under their belt or more. It can be someone local. It could be someone you know. It could be your a relative, a parent. It doesn't matter. If you have someone that you feel their ability to do something drives you to want to do more, that's an important connection to have. It's the kind of responsibility that falls on both sides of the table. It's the responsibility of an artist and it's the responsibility of a fan. For instance, an artist, don't forget your fans. That's, that's simple. As I said, don't be an artist that's so caught up in your own work that you become farther and farther away from reality as you get deeper, because then you're not doing a, a, any service to the public. Um, and then, by contrast, for, for fans, be careful who you're idolizing. Lots of people, I, I mean, not to use the, the, the old religious trope, the, the false idols concept, there are people who really, they take celebrities and then hoist them up as, as gods among men. And it gets really, really sad when you think that a lot of times it's just a runaway train. When you look at the, the values and the work of, of those artists in question, sometimes it's not often very, uh, it's, 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 it's not very admirable. Very, there are lots of artists that, that, that treat their, their fame like it is some kind of privilege. Well, and, but, and there are fans who follow suit and, and give them reason to think that way. And that's why I say that it's a responsibility of the fans as well, because we make these people. Don't love everything about everybody when, when you're following them. There are certain artists, authors, painters that I love parts of their bodies of work or their whole body of work. Yet, I, I just don't like who they are as a person. I have a perfect, pick, pick it out. I have a perfect example of that. People, depending on the person you talk to, left or right, up or down, Michael Jackson is a point for many conversations. But I don't care what anybody says about his personal life, his choices, the things he did, he said, his music is incredible. There were moments when his career lapsed and he didn't make great music, but even after passing away with help of very famous producers, his record that came out this past year was incredible. But, I, you know, personally, he, was, he did very strange things, but that doesn't ruin the music for me. It's, it's good to be able to compartmentalize, but ideally, you want to be driven. The point of this idolatry conversation is mostly about drive, at least for me, and it sounds like for you guys too. You want that person, that artist, that musician, that that celebrity, to push you, to do more, to make you want to do more. The difference is that there are people who are famous for being famous and nothing else now. And that's where the problem lies with some idolatry. If you're famous for doing something... <laughs> well, that's a whole other level. <laughs> right. If you're famous for doing something, that's great because it's going to inspire people to go out and do things. Especially if it's something that was actually worthwhile to contribute to society. 
<laughs> right. Plenty of people have done things that they're famous for that you really don't want to be famous for. Well, yes. But that goes without saying. And so I, I think it's important to share these kind of personal stories because someone out there may be idolized by Dave Grohl also, but didn't maybe realize it. You know, it's important to have these things. Um, I forget the uh, the name of the author, but um, to your point, John, as far as people who you could love their body of work, but uh, but hate them as a person, or I would Scott say Card. Um, that's not who I was thinking. I was thinking of the author of of uh, the Naked Lunch. Oh, never saw that. Yeah, never, never, never read that one. Yeah. No, Orson Scott Card is actually a big pseudo celebrity author who's had a lot of issues because he writes amazing science fiction, yet is pretty much a huge douche he's a terrible person he's the one who wrote ender's game right yeah yeah which honestly i think is one of the best science fiction series of the last 25 30 years yeah but he's a prejudiced racist homophobic individual just on one level is which is why i stopped buying his work when i found that out and and i I merely borrow it but i make sure he doesn't get my money yet at the same time i can't put his books down i love his books conflicting Pretty sure uh, the the author of Naked Lunch was the guy who who ended up shooting his wife by playing a game. Uh, you know, where you shoot the apple off the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, talk about irresponsibility. William Tell. William well, Tell. game of William Tell, exactly. Yeah. Um, if only I can remember that author. But anyway, search author of Naked Lunch. Uh, <laughs> there's your idol, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, on that very Be a man de- to live by. Uh, on that very depressing note, let's move on to the spam, please, for the love of everything. <laughs> you want to move on to the spam this week, huh? That's uh, quite surprising. Well, I do have a spam for you, and I have a spam for you indeed as soon as I bring it up. Spam, 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 spam. Wow, marvelous weblog structure. How long have you ever been How long have you ever been blogging for? You make blogging glance easy. The total glance of your website is great, let alone the content material. By Mom Charm. Bam, 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 bam. Spam. Spam. Wow. I'm not even going to try it. Like yeah, this one. Um, yeah, no. Um, so next week, uh, we all take a break for a bit. Steve gets a little bit less of a break. but um, A lot of bit less of a break. So next week, we will have our yearly bloopers episode, um, a tradition we've continued for a while. Um, also, if you're listening to this by now, it's already after the release of Episode 11 of Crash Chords Autographs featuring Sky Blue, the youngest artist I've interviewed to date and one of the youngest rappers I've ever met, well, via the phone. So go check that out. Um, of course, please submit all al- new album recommendations via Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, the email, anything else. We accept them all. And in two weeks, you will be hearing our year in review, where we take apart uh, everything we've done this year, give you our best and worst, and, well, mostly best, because not that many worst. Uh, Oh, we give Razzies. We give a a little bit of an idea of what we kind of missed out on over this past year, and kind of what we want to do next year. Um, Mostly it's just us, you know, gushing over so many different things that we did this year. Album wise, song wise, what was the what was your favorites? And there were some milestones for the website as well, which we'll talk about a bit too in the year in review. Um, any any longtime listener would know that we have technically a, a season seasons one and one point five, pretty much. Uh, obviously, our hundredth episode specials fifty, one hundred, one hundred fifty always will fall um, 
at the midway point of the summer, and our year-end reviews always fall at 25.75, 25.75. So look for these patterns um, in our backlogs, if ever you're curious, to see, on one hand, our 25.75s, our year-end reviews that specifically look at ratings, and then our 50s, 100s, if you're curious about our us and any specials we have to give in the future. It's our chance to do something different. Um, so on that note, we will wrap up, and we will see you guys right before and then in the new year. On that note, music is life. And life is good.